it was 1981. It was, you know, the Ramones one night and then the Clash and the Jam, the Damned, going on the road. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Law Blacks 1 to 1 podcast. My name's Chris Allen. I'm the managing partner of Black Solicitors. We're a law firm based in Leeds, West Yorkshire. I've worked in West Yorkshire for over 26 years, and during that time, I've met plenty of interesting people in both the business world and the sports world. I'm looking forward to catching up with some more of those people soon and sharing their stories, anecdotes, and even advice. I hope you find the interviews interesting, engaging, and indeed even educational. At the start of this podcast, you'll hear our new signature music. I hope you like it. I particularly hope my guest today likes it, as he does know his music, as they say. Steve Rapport is a mostly rock and roll photographer who swapped East End London for Pacifica, California in the 1990s. But before he did, he photographed just about every significant rock and roll performer during the 1980s and early 90s, during his first career as a photographer. There's a bit more than that to Steve's story, and I'm hoping he's going to shed some light on his career, the people he's met, and how he ended up with his own gallery and online business in Pacifica. Due to lockdown, but mainly due to the fact he lives absolutely miles away, this is a socially distanced podcast recorded via Zoom. So, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome, mate. Um, Now, our paths crossed on Instagram. I remember mentioning or clicking or liking, uh, I think, a picture you'd put up about Paul Weller or Billy Bragg or Red Wedge or one of those things. And I think that's where we, we clicked into the fact that we were both there, but you were doing something more meaningful than I was. Um, so tell us about photography. Just tell us about how, you, how your career kicked off, Steve, and bring me up to speed as to how you got that first assignment photographing rock stars. Okay, so Warwick University, um, 1975. Um, that's when I went to Warwick uh, to do my undergrad. Uh, so I was in Coventry, Leamington, Kenilworth for, for a long time. Uh, and I was into, you know, Pink Floyd and the Rolling Stones and the Who and the Eagles and, you know, all the great rock stuff, Jimi Hendrix. Um, and I was always into photography, even when I was at high school uh, uh, in Woodford uh, in Essex. So I'd use the darkroom. I knew how to, you know, develop film and print my own pictures, but I was really into music. So I used to read NMA every week, cover to cover. And my English teacher, Mrs. Giles, used to call me Melody Maker Steve. And I think she did it just to piss me off because... Um, I wouldn't have been seen, I wouldn't have been caught dead reading Melody Maker. <clears throat> I was an enemy all the way. Um, you know, the brilliant writers that they had back then and photographers and um, insightful political commentary and, and everything. So went to Warwick and, you know, there were bands at Warwick and, um, you know, some of our friends made a, uh, formed a band called the VIPs. They were like a campus band and they got some gigs. They supported the Bunnymen in Coventry. So I went to see the Bunnymen in Coventry as time went on, 77, 78. Um, I, I stayed at Warwick or resumed my studies doing postgrad um, in law, actually, at Warwick. But summer of 1977, I spent the whole summer in America uh, on, with BUNAC, the British University of North America's club, on an exchange program. Spent 14 weeks out there and um, bought a bunch of vinyl while I was over there. But when I came back, my sister um, had saved every enemy from the whole summer. And what did I miss? Um, I missed... The Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Jam. Yeah, you missed uh, a lot. Costello. <laughs> I missed a lot right through that summer. 
but I caught caught up really quickly. I read all the enemies and I started listening to all the stiff bands, the two tone bands, and um, especially the Clash, especially the Jam, uh, the Damned, the Stranglers, and and it's, a, it's all a funny story and everything's linked to everything. Because at Warwick, me and my mate Solly had a secondhand record store that we do. I think once a week in the student union, buy and sell vinyl from the students, and. Um, Solly ended up having his own record label and, and managed bands like the Blue Aeroplanes. He managed the VIPs, Mood Six, and, and a bunch of bands that had, you know, a little bit of success. But being honest, he was a wide boy. He studied law as well, but he, uh, he didn't have the same ethical guidelines as I did, um, morals and ethics, in my opinion. So we kind of, you know, our paths diverged. But we did the record store, and we used to... We used to Talking about ethics, we used to buy and sell bootlegs. So I don't know how that quite fits in with my ethical principles. But, you know, we take orders. And I found this bloke in Portobello Road Market who would, who would uh, deal in bootlegs for us. So Little Fee and Dylan and Springsteen bootlegs. But Gary McManus ran the record. There's a record shop in the student union. And Gary McManus ran it. He was in a band called School Meals. He was a bass player. And we used to go and see his band. And he'd tell us. Oh, Steve, you got to listen to this new album. It's it's called 77. It's by this band Talking Heads. They're from New York. It's great. Oh, listen to, uh, you know, Johnny Thunders. Listen to this this album by Television, Marky Moon. Oh, my God, probably one of the best 10 albums of all time still. Um, oh, there's this band, The Ramones. They're a punk band. What's a punk band? So he got us listening to all this stuff. And um, then we really got into punk. I had a record show, uh, uh, a radio show at Warwick called Roots Rock Reggae. That was actually rock, it was actually punk. So I'd start with Blitzkrieg Bop every week, nice. and that's like a minute and a half, right? So I'd usually let Blitz, Blitzkrieg Bop run into Beat on the Brat, and then usually I think, well, I might as well listen to Judy's a Punk as well. And then it'd just be me and a couple of mates in the studio. No one used to listen to it. <laughs> so then we'd start talking, and we talked for about ten minutes, and then we'd realise that we hadn't turned the microphone on. So that was like me and the music, and then when I was doing my PhD. I was doing an MPhil in law and then I transferred to a PhD, but I had an office and no classes. So my mates would come over and we'd listen to music and we'd go and see bands and we'd hang out in my office talking about music. And the specials were around Selector by then. So now we're into what, 78, I suppose. And I'd already been to see, you know, The Clash and <clears throat> The Jam and all those bands. And um, Robert Plant came to play at Warwick with uh, Honey Drippers and uh, that was a pretty big deal because he hadn't played for, I think, since pretty much since Led Zeppelin split up. And I took pictures in the student union. Now, student union wasn't a great venue for gigs. It was, it was, it was the union. It wasn't the arts centre. So the lighting was sh And um, I did get some pictures and I figured this might be, you know, this might be my big break. So I made some prints and I, and I became a human Bruce Springsteen song. Uh, I went to the bus station in Coventry and, and took the national bus down to Victoria um, with my little portfolio. And I got out of Victoria station. And remember this is 19, now it's 1981. My PhD is going nowhere. I'm getting, I'm stuck on my thesis. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that too surprised by that actually, but go on. <laughs> yeah, you have to write 90,000 words and I didn't know that many words. So I was using and and the a lot, <laughs> but I really wasn't getting anywhere near the end of it. So photography, so I, I, I literally get out of the bus and there's not one of the red phone booths, but just one of those open phone boxes at Victoria because some hadn't invented cell phones yet. So I get the phone book out for young, young, 
young listeners, that was a big book that you used to get every year that had lots of phone numbers in it. It was called a phone book. You could hit people with it. It would kill them instantly. It weighed about 100 pounds. And uh, there was like a white one and a yellow one and the yellow pages. I can't remember that's over, only over here in the States, but it had all the businesses in it. And I thought, who should I call? Well, NME would be the best because I'd love to have pictures in NME, but really, you know, Robert Plant, probably not really their cup of tea. Uh, Melody Maker, maybe. Sounds. That's got to be sounds, really, because they were really into rock, metal, punk, all of that. So I called Cold Called Sound. Looked them up in the phone book. It was in the phone book, Sounds in Covent Garden. Called them and, and uh, they put me in touch with Eric Fuller, who was the picture editor. And he said, yeah, sounds interesting. Why don't you come over? Believe I'm making me. a big face that you can't see because we're on radio. Like, ah. <clears throat> so, uh, so I take the tube from Victoria over to Covent Garden. And I go to see um, Sounds and they show me to Eric Fuller. And I can't really believe this is happening. Um, and he looks at my pictures and says, yeah, we can use that. He said, why don't you write 50 words and we'll use it on the news page. And I said, yep, I can do that. And I showed him my little portfolio and he said, well, if anything happens in commentary, you know, maybe, maybe we could, you know, use you. And I don't know how they would get in touch with me because... Yeah. There's no mobile yeah. phones, man. They couldn't call my watch in, like my, my Apple watch in those days. So, uh, <laughs> but it actually happened a couple of months later. The specials were playing at Butts Stadium. It's seriously called Butts Stadium, B-U-T-T-S Stadium in Coventry with, I think, God's Children and a couple of other bands. And they said, can you take pictures for us? And they sent Karen Swain up from London, I believe. And uh, we're still friends, actually. We, we, we connected on Instagram recently. And um, I took pictures. I didn't really know what to do, but I took pictures and I sent them like this massive box of prints because I didn't know, you know, how many pictures you send or anything like that. And um, I, they used this really nice picture of Jerry. Um, it's actually backstage. They didn't use one of the live ones. There's this great picture of Jerry and there's a nice one of Terry Hall backstage. And they used it over several columns. And that was my, that was my start. That was, that was my first commission. I'm looking while we're speaking because I found the legs. Scanned it. I'm going to show it to Karen right here. Oh yeah, nice one. So did you move uh, back down? Did you move back down to London then? I moved back to London, and, and the rest was history. At the end. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Steve. You've been, a wonder, you've, been, once, you've been a wonderful guest. <laughs> thank you. As Kevin Turvey once said, to cut a long story short, the end. <laughs> so talk to me about so that whole that that thing starts developing. So were you freelancing the whole time, or were you working? Just for just for sounds or just oh, for mate, it was brilliant. Or... Honestly, look, looking back now, it was brilliant. Uh, I was living in Stockwell, in southwest London. Um, bought a little flat there for like I, don't know, I think twenty seven thousand pounds for a two bedroom flat, right near the tube station. Very convenient. Um, and I go to gigs. So now it's nineteen. It's, it's mid to late seventy, uh, mid to late eighty one. And they so I moved back to London. Then they started sending me to to all these gigs. So five or six nights a week, I go to gigs. My second bedroom uh, was a dark room. So go home, process the film, make some prints, take it in the next day, go to the next gig. But it was 1981. It was, you know, the Ramones one night and then the Clash and the Jam, the Damned, going on the road, going, and then they started giving me features to do. So I went to um, Fu Futurama and I went to um, Christmas on Earth in Leeds, which I kind of hated, but looking back now, it was pretty amazing. It, it's like GBH and Vice Squad and Discharge and out, uh, uh, 
uh, Outcast and and the Damned and just like just some of those bands are still like really popular yeah. now. Um, I, I, was due, I was due to see the Damned last year, but obviously it's been knocked on the head because of you know COVID. This podcast is, needless to say, sponsored by Black Solicitors. Black's is a law firm based in Leeds, and we provide a range of commercial, property and private client services to clients throughout the United Kingdom. Obviously, I'd love you to enjoy this podcast and then use our services on any legal issues you have going forward. If you visit lawblacks.com, you'll see the kind words that existing clients have had to say about the services we provide. Now, back to the podcast. So, so yeah. when you were, when you were in those early days, when you were going to those gigs, are you are you sort of getting backstage as well, or or is this just you stood at the front taking photographs and it's what you get, or are you actually getting the access all areas? Are you, are you meeting these people? Um, yes and no. That's funny because a lot of people ask that in the gallery. That people are really confused when they come into my gallery. What are these pictures? Why are they here? How did you how did you take these pictures? And I don't really understand the question. Like. You know, I think they think I was just a fan with a camera or just how do you get that access? Because I was a photographer. <laughs> but I, then I realised I have to explain what that means. So sometimes it was just a gig and sometimes you'd be working on a feature and doing gig pictures. So, for example, I went, I did go on the road with the damned for two or three days um, up in your neck of the woods, I think. I know it, maybe not. I think it was Burn, maybe Burnley and Bradford. Um and I don't think it was for a cover, although it might have been. So I went to like two gigs and we hung out backstage with them. And we hung out at the hotel with them. And um, they're the basis of a book that I did with uh, with Ronnie Gurr from Hanging Around Books last year. When you were um, doing that, were you trying to be a total professional photographer? Or were you sort of thinking, I'm on tour with the damned and therefore I'm, I'm going for it? Are you going to tell me that the damned were mad as hatters or uh, no, totally square? No, in fact... No, I wrote this really sweet intro to my little book. Um, it, it's called a photo zine. So it's like A5, I think is what it is, like half A4. It's, it's small. And I wrote this little intro. And it, actually, they were, they were really nice, fun. I was pretty scared going because Anti, Anti Nowhere League were the support band. And they had quite a reputation. I mean, the singer was called Animal. So, you know, what are you going to expect? But no, they were all really nice. Um, I, I just found them really sweet guys. I really liked hanging out with them. I don't remember too much about most of it, um, but um, and I was surprised by Animal. Animal was really nice. I got nice pictures of Antino. Really got great pictures of them live. Um, and I was I was already a professional photographer. I mean, as soon as I started, that was that was all I was doing. Um, I was a photographer, and when people ask me how do you become a photographer, you just become a photographer, and you tell people you're a photographer, and then they believe you. Know, you. you, make, you make it if they believe you, you're a photographer. If they don't, then at least you tried, right? Yeah. Um, but it was a great time because my recollection is you could shoot the whole gig and most of the time there was a pit so yeah in the punk era you'd have people I don't know crowd surfing and was a mosh pit and there were people pogoing and spitting and and um, there'd be bodies being passed over the barriers by security and security would be pulling people out and people could try to get on the stage but by and large you could shoot the whole show and um the punk gigs, the lighting was usually pretty bad, but looking back now, it was just a, just a 
fucking amazing time with unprecedented, unparalleled access. Because over the years it became, well, you can shoot the first four numbers. You can shoot the first three numbers. Then it became two. And then literally the last gig I ever did was REM out here in the Bay Area. And it was one number. And it was 50 miles away uh, on, I think, a Thursday evening. So you had to drive through traffic. So it takes two hours to drive down to the Shoreline Amphitheater. And one number. And then they walked the photographers out of the arena. Wow. So, and it's, it's, it's a bowl. And then there's just grass banks. It's when Neil Young did the bridge, uh, the bridge school benefit every year. I used to go and see a lot of those. So at least you could sit on the grass at the back. No, they walked us out of the, of the wow. whole place. What, I'm supposed to go home now? That was it. <laughs> four minutes. I just drove two hours. Four minutes. Wow. It's like, I was going to compare it to something else, but I will resist that temptation. Yeah, resist that temptation, please. There's a fancy yeah. show. So one of the pictures that caught my eye when I was looking at your picture, Steve, was that were those iconic photos, I suppose you'd say they're iconic, of Joe Strummer running the London Marathon right. in 1983. Just tell me about how that comes about, because that's not your normal gig. Um, and, and it's become my favourite, it's become the linchpin of my existence, um, to, be, to be blunt. Um, Joe Strummer has become the key character in in my photography life, which has become my life again, and the gallery and everything else that's happened, it's all really because of Joe Strummer. And, um, so I can tell that story if you like, but the story of, the, of the, the marathon is that I met Joe the year before in Hollywood when I went over with Johnny Waller, who was my best mate. He died a long time ago, sadly, um, to do a Bow Wow Wow feature. And it turned out we, we stayed at the Sunset Marquee in Hollywood and the clash and the beat and Kid Creole and the Coconuts were staying there at the same time. Oh, wow. which, is, which is also funny because I took pictures of Kid Creole and the Coconuts live like two nights before in London. And then I'm out in Hollywood and there's Kid Creole walking around the pool and there's Joe and there's, there's Rankin Roger and we played football in the, in the parking lot across the road. Um, the beaten road crew against, um, against uh, Bow Wow Wow and their road crew. So I went for a drink with Joe um, at Barney's Beanery and with Joe and Cosmo Vinyl and Johnny, played, played pool, uh, had a drinking game, found out that Joe Strummer's first album that he ever bought was Every Picture Tells a Story by Rod Stewart. And that was, a, that was also my first album. So I felt like, you know, we were soulmates, me and yeah. Joe. It's like you remember the, you're almost <laughs> a member of the clash already. Almost. Um, they invited us and I was friends with the beat already because, you know, Midlands band, um, two-tone and all that. Um, and let me just say, Roger, one of the sweetest guys, sad. Dave Wakelin, great, but just a bunch of great blokes. The Bow Wow Wow were great blokes. The, uh, Joe and, and, uh, and Terry Chimes, the drummer, came and hung out at the Bow Wow Wow gig. And then we all went to the Clash and the, and the Beat gig um, at the Palladium. Just an amazing three-day trip. Um, so I kind of knew Joe. So I get a call out of the blue the next year from Rolling Stones. It's now 83, Mark, April 83, saying, Joe Strummer's running the London Marathon. Can you get a picture for us? Yeah, all right. Okay, thanks. Bye. And, and that was it. Not, you know, here's Bernie Rhodes' phone number. Here's Joe's, here's what Joe's cell phone would be if, if cell phones had been invented. Um, here's, you know, here's a raven that you can send a message to Joe with. Just, you know, can you get a picture? Yeah, yeah, of course I can. And then I hung, hang up and like, how am I going to do that? So I lived in Clapham. Uh, I drove to Blackheath Common. And I think it was the, I think it was a Sunday. I'm not 100% sure. 
I looked it up, but I can't quite remember. I drive across London in the rain, because of course it's raining, and I go to Blackheath and I park my car and there's, you know, 30,000 people, 20,000, 25,000 people. And I get out of the car and there's Joe Strummer warming up, like no five way. yards from where I park my car, maybe 10. And um, so I go and reintroduce myself to him and, and I explain what I was doing. And he's like, yeah, sure. So I took pictures of Joe and he was really cool. And it, it, I just love the black and white of him because everyone is, it's raining, it's cold, it's miserable. And they're about to run 26 miles and they've all got like rain jackets on and hats and umbrellas. But there's Joe in his, in his ripped up complete control clash t-shirt. Um, he's ripped the sleeves off it and the, and the neck. Um, D916, I think, is his number. And there's just this, like this pool of light around him. He's smiling and he's not huddling. He's just standing there. And I just love that. There's this gap between him and everyone else with, with light and rain, light, light and water. So I got pictures there. And then I thought, well, this is really great, but, but I should try and get pictures of him running if I can. So I think I must have driven to probably the south side of Tower Bridge, parked, walked across the bridge, and then waited in the rain for what seemed like hours on Lower Thames Street. And I was literally giving up, thinking I must have missed him or maybe he's not finishing the race or something. And then I see bandy legs. He really had bandy legs. Skinny Joe with his mohawk trundling down up at uh, Lower Thames Street. And my recollection is just quickly like, I grab my camera and say, gonna get some pictures. And I, and, and I snapped one or two shots. That was my, my recollection. So yeah, uh, Rolling Stone used one and NME used one. And that was pretty much it. That was that was Joe and the and the 1983 London Marathon. And was that good money and for that, the, Steve? Did you? I mean, you know, if, if you get a picture, if you, how was it? If you get, I was going to say, if probably, you get, it was probably like fifty quid or something. Oh really? Wow. Um, yeah, and I only ever I only ever did maybe three jobs for Rolling Stone. Uh, I think I did the Secret Policeman's Third Ball at the Shaftesbury Theatre for them, which was pretty great because everyone was, you know, all the great comedians and musicians were there. But um, yeah, they didn't give me a lot of work. So they, they did use it, and it was just in their random notes, the news section with a little column, and that'll, that'll feature in the story again um, in a while. So that's it. And then over the years, you know, a lot of mythology grew up around Joe running the marathons. Did he, how many did he run? Did he run Paris? Did he run twice in Paris? Did he run twice in London? Did he ever really do one? Um, yes, he did the London. He entered it. He had a number. He, he, he actually did it for the sun, but for the charity. I can't remember what the charity was raised like $800, 500 quid, which is what I ended up doing in 92. I did it for Crime Stoppers because I couldn't get an entry. So then I moved here in 92 and my photo library was in my friend's garage in Oxfordshire in this old cottage for 25 years. And then three years ago, well, I got a call from this guy called Bryce and he runs a company called Satisfy Running in Paris. Uh, he emailed me and he said, look, we do punk running gear. And um, I came across this picture of yours on, you know, uh, on the web of Joe Strummer running the London Marathon. I'd love to use it on a T-shirt. Can I get hold of it? I said, well, well, the negatives are all in my friend's garage in Oxfordshire. I said, well, could I get in touch with him? Well, yeah, well, that's fancy. Why not? So he calls Rod. I put him in touch with my mate Rod, who was best man at my wedding. And um, they dealt with each other. And then they were UPS or FedEx to Paris. And then Brees actually made this T-shirt. 
and it's uh, and I had one. It, it's it's amazing. It, it's a punk. It's a, a moth-eaten punk T-shirt with Joe on it. Um, it's got loads of holes in it. The air holes. <laughs> it's like yeah. a moth-eaten punk T-shirt. So eventually, I got him to send me my Joe Strummer negatives, and then I got Rod finally to box up all my stuff and send it over here. So now I've got hold of my most of my stuff. There's loads of stuff missing especially 82 to 88 to 92. I don't know what happened to all of that stuff. It's mostly gone. But um, couple, a, a year or two goes by. And then last year, 2020, after lockdown, my pictures were syndicated through London Features International for decades. They got sued and they went out of business. And, and then uh, this company called Photoshop inherited or bought the, the archive. And okay, I would say they're allegedly, let's say not very honest, people to do business with and I didn't want them repping me anymore so I asked them to give me back any pictures of mine that they had and after a lot of back and forth they sent me four boxes of, of transparencies <clears throat> they put them in those you've probably got these in your office because you're a lawyer those storage boxes with just the lid yeah you store your documents in they are not shipping containers by any stretch of the imagination they just put a bunch of tape around them and when they arrived they were all crushed bashed up and I open them and there's just like transparencies everywhere. They didn't use any bubble wrap. They didn't wrap anything. They just put these big sheets in there. And it's mostly four boxes of bands like Men Without Hats. No offense, Jimmy the Hoover. Again, no offense, but I don't think I'm ever going to sell one of those. But in amongst them is these, are these sheets of a mishmash of different stuff. And I pick the first one up and I look at it and there's a color picture of Joe running the London Marathon. Wow. And I had no idea that I took color. And then I, I keep looking, there's a whole sheet I cried. I actually cried when I saw them. There's a whole sheet of color pics of Joe running the London Marathon. So I scanned the first one and it's Joe waving. He's like looking around and waving at mile 20 or mile 21. And um, I put that on Instagram, put it on Twitter. And the Twitter post went viral um, really fast. And I said, you've never seen this before because I haven't seen this before. And I f***ing took it. And putting that word, that effing word in there meant that I couldn't ever promote <laughs> I tried to promote the, the Twitter post and, and Facebook wouldn't, uh, Twitter wouldn't let me because of terms of service, but it got over a million impressions. Wow. And that's really, and then I, um, I put it on Instagram and I said, since so, so many people want this, I'll do like 20 prints at a special price, something like, I think it was $115 for an 11 by 14, including shipping. And I thought I'd sell 10 of them or 20 of them. I ended up selling 60 something of them. Wow. And, um, and, and it really started everything. It's, it, it, it really got my career restarted. It got me loads of followers on Instagram. I scanned loads of the Joe Strummer pics and lots of them were really, really, really nice. But it was all a revelation because I had no idea I'd taken them, the, the color ones. Wow. And, and in fact, Breeze at Satisfy Running, they just did a, another set of pictures. He told me they were licensed the last time. It turns out they weren't <laughs> because he was dealing with Joe's family, some of his relatives, and it just fell through the cracks. Um, so I was upset about that and, and the office wasn't too happy. But now I'm friends with a person who runs the Joe Strummer estate and office. And uh, the, new, the new line of shirts that they did, those are licensed. Um, and they've almost, they've almost sold out, but they're really cool. And someone just sent me, <laughs> this is really funny. He just saw a, a trailer for a Netflix movie. So it's a movie called Bling Empire, which I think has got... I think it's like trans drag queens and you know, he said, is this your shirt? Let me see if you can see that at least. Oh yeah. Just, yeah. Take it back a little bit. Yeah. Can you see it? 
So apparently he's wearing that in the trailer and I suppose in the movie, but that's, that's one of the latest range of, so Bling Empire. So if you're watching Bling Empire on Netflix, there you go. Yeah. That's Joe. You're everywhere these days, Steve. Everywhere. So that's, so that's, that's most of the, um, the Joe Strummer story. Now I have a book um, called Kick Over the Wall, Joe Strummer and the Clash Picks, a photo book of all my, from all those, from the Clash gigs and from Joe running the marathon and Joe with Annabella Lewin from Bow Wow Wow. And out of, the, out of those bands like the, the lads in the Clash and Bow Wow Wow, et cetera, who were, the, who were the real good guys out of that crowd then? Obviously Joe sounds like a good lad. Who else was, who was good to you? Yeah, I really wish I'd been able to hang out with Joe more. But I suppose I'm privileged to have at least met him a, a couple of times. Um, can I just finish on an interesting part of the, the mythology on the, on the marathon? Yeah. Um, it, those of you who are really into the crash, really into Joe, know that he uh, allegedly probably ran the Paris marathon at least once. And he was, because the crash were touring in Scotland and Bernie Rhodes said the tickets weren't selling. And he said to Joe, Joe, can you disappear for a little while? It will gin up some press. It will make a story. We'll say Joe Strummer's disappeared. Why don't you go to Texas and hang out with Joe Ely? Because he was a, a, a mate of theirs. So Joe said, yeah, all right. And Joe went to Paris <laughs> and really disappeared. And no one could find him. Bernie couldn't find him. They really didn't know where he was. And the mythology is that he ran the marathon with his girlfriend. He definitely didn't enter it. So he didn't have an official number. Um, and he did an interview with Stepping Out where they asked him, what was your training regime? And he said, well, I mean, don't, I wouldn't recommend this to anyone else, but um, didn't run at all for four weeks before the race and then stayed up all night and drank 10 pints the night before. Said, but you probably shouldn't tell people that because only me and Hunter, Hunter Thompson could do that. And that became the folklore that, you know, Joe Strummer ran a London marathon and a Paris marathon without training and he just drank all night before the race. And I recently found the Rolling Stone clipping I have the page from the 1983 Rolling Stone, May 23rd, I think, 1983. And there are quotes from Joe in it. And I, I, think, I think he must have told me, because there wasn't a journalist there. They didn't send anyone, anyone over. So there are these quotes about him, um, his training, that um, he even swore off alcohol. And um, he liked it because, you know, he, he'd get up on a Sunday morning when normally he'd be in bed. And running that him think without being bothered. And he could, you know, he likes to write songs in his head while he's running. And it turns out that he was a cross-country champion in high school. Chris, that's in Chris Salovich's book, and Chris confirmed that to me. And um, he was a runner. Joe was a runner. And he said that he ran every day to train for the marathon. And I think he must have told that to me because I don't know who else he would have told. And it's interesting because in the in, in the Rolling Stone it says he ran it in four hours thirty. Well, he ran it in four hours 13. So to me, I watch, I watch a lot of crime stuff. To me, it sounds like um, a transatlantic phone call that's mistranscribed. Yeah. Yeah, but like four, he, 413 for a marathon's decent. You know, it's decent. It's very decent, yeah, you know, yeah. Four, you know, if you did four hours, you'd be over the moon, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, so he, 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 took his, he took his running seriously, and, and I'm trying to correct that impression everywhere now because... Um, I'm also kind of friends with Luce now, um, Joe's widow who lives in Somerset. She has a copy of my book. Well, friends, I say that very loosely. Um, but um, I, I think she confirmed through, the, through David who runs the Joe Strummer office. That, yeah, he, he, took his, he took his running seriously. He liked to run. So talk to me about some of these, uh, the, these other gang then. So 
the Red Wedge tour. Obviously, that thing I sent you that article, and you, your reply to that was there some of my photographs. So, what what do you remember from that tour? I remember if if you see Red Wedge pictures, that they're, they're nearly always mine. So, if you saw me in New Statesman or in in any of the Red Wedge publications or in the Guardian or in Number One or Smash Hits or, you know, I, I was the photographer in 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 the Red Wedge in all the Red Wedge stuff. So. All I remember is, I think Billy Bragg probably told me about it. So Billy was a mate of mine and I'd worked with Paul Weller a lot um, over the years. And I, I heard about this fledgling organization before it was even called Red Wedge. Paul Bauer was involved and it was all really talented people. Uh, a lot of West Ham fans as it happens um, because a lot of my mates worked on my fanzine, Fortune's Always Hiding and were, were journalists and like Phil Jupiter, Porky the Poet. He, he did the um, he did the cartoons in my fanzine, but he was also on the Red Wedge tour. And uh, his mate Joe um, Joe Norris um, uh, off the Curb Productions, they handled all the all the comedians for the, com the comedy tour um, with Addison Cresswell, who also, who also sadly passed away. Joe's a hammer. Pete May, who's a hammer, was involved. Mike Patton and Don Peretta, um, my best mate. Um, he's the guy who brought Italian football to Channel Four. No, is it? Uh, another another big big West Ham fan and um, was involved in Red Wedge. So Tim Roth was was in Red Wedge, um, and we go to all these early meetings. And in fact, some of the meetings were at my house in Clapham. I was just telling a mate who's a huge uh, Eurythmics collector. I even spoke to Annie um, Lennox once. She actually called me the one time in my life. Annie Annie called me at my house in Clapham because I'd been trying to get her to come on the Red Wedge tour. But it turned out I thought as as the daughter of you know very working class family in Aberdeen, she'd be well into like lefty politics, but she, it wasn't that she wasn't interested. She just really didn't know anything about it. And she wanted me to kind of explain it all to her. And, and she ended up taking a pass because I, th I think she felt like it wasn't much. something she commit. Yeah, she, well, she just didn't really know. It wasn't like she didn't support it, but she just didn't know enough about it. But I got Gary Kemp to join the tour. Um, I was the one who was calling some of the, or talking to some of the musicians, um, but there are brilliant people, artists, designers, uh, writers, journalists, artists, musicians, actors. And um, it, it was one of those times where you could just do it. Just, why don't we do a tour? Yeah, let's just do a tour. And Pete Jenner, Billy Bragg's manager, was involved. And and I think reluctantly, John Weller was involved. Mm. Um, Paul really supported it. But I don't think John, I think John was pretty conservative. His dad, mm. for those of you who don't know, was his manager. Yeah. So, I, so I saw that tour when they came to Bradford and I saw, I was in the, it was at St George's Hall, but in the afternoon there was a thing on at the Queen's Queen's Hall. I remember Paul Weller walking in, and I was so starstruck at whatever age I was. Obviously, it was impossible to speak to him. So, uh, and that was it. That was the, that was the passing of uh, Paul Weller and <laughs> me in the same room. So, never mind. Interesting though that you say that because I've got a feeling I'm looking through my damned pictures. I think one of those gigs was was at. Saint Where did George, you say St. George's Hall was was the well it was in, Queen's in Hall. Well. Yeah. It was Queen's well, Hall. Okay, so, Hall. so we were at the Crest, we were at the Crest Hotel in Burnley. And then I've got a feeling that Bradford might have been the I think the gig might have been at the same place. So you keep talking, I am gonna look that one up. But you know, we, we so we did the tour. I, I didn't go to Bradford. Jules Jules played at Bradford, right? Yeah. The poet, she's a she's yeah. a friend of mine. She was at That's my wedding right. actually, because she was Rebecca's best friend at the time, my my ex-wife. Uh, Jules and Justin from New Model Army was her bloke. Um, he was a singer in New Model Army. 
Um, I don't know why I missed that gig because I went to, let's see, we started on the 25th of January, 1986. We started at Manchester Apollo and then we did um, Cardiff, Queen's Hall, I think, Cardiff. And then we did uh, Leicester de Montfort Hall and Birmingham Odeon. And then we did Newcastle uh, City Hall. And uh, the Smiths played at Newcastle. And we had Lloyd Cole and Tom Robinson. Alan Hull from Lindisfarne played at Newcastle. Um, that was the only one that Morrissey did. Johnny Marr played on a few. Andy Kemp from, from uh, the Smiths played. Gary Kemp played in, New in Manchester. Suggs and Bedders, and I think one or two. Uh, uh, Chaz from Madness played more than one gig. Um, uh, Julie, Julie Roberts from Working Week played the, the Manchester Odeon gig, which was a little bit later, that month or two later. And um, it was the Communards, the Style Council, That's Billy right, Bedders. Yeah. So, so, uh, Bradford, there was definitely Style Council, Communards. Uh, I think Junior was there, actually. Oh, Junior Jiskin played, uh, I think, every every day. Yeah. Um, Communards played every day. So Jimmy Somerville, uh, Richard Coles, Sarah Jane Morris, um, and they were they were brilliant live as well. They were really so good live. Um, King George's King George Hall Blackburn, I have down here. Yeah, that's right. Is that right? Oh, so this was the Dan Crest Hotel Burnley and the Grand Hotel in Hanley in Stoke, and that was in eight, November eighty one. So um, it, it was, you know, people forget because the politics. I mean, it didn't work, did it? We, we were trying to get get rid of Thatcher and get a Labour government elected, and. Um, you know, we came up against the party machine and none of us was too happy about that. Paul, more than anyone. Um, you know, Billy was into working through whatever channels he could work with, but Paul was really not into the organised politics part of it. Mm. His views aligned with all of us, but he, he took a, a bit of a backseat role in terms of, I don't think he really believed in the party. And I didn't, I was never a member of the Labour Party. I've never actually joined a political party in my life. So I always feel like they don't really represent my views and I don't like tying myself to them so I've always been around the far left mid left slight left but never never the kind of wishy-washy center left if you like so uh, you know Paul's been pretty consistent in his views but I think Paul was very shy so I, I don't really have a lot of I don't remember having a lot of conversations with Paul um, about politics or about anything I just feel like I met him a, a load of times worked with him a load of times Knew him pretty well, but without really knowing him, without really being mates, not someone I would, you know, call up for a chat. And I wish it was because I love him. I, yeah, I yeah. absolutely love him to death. I really do. Um, and now I feel like he's such a geezer now. I mean, talk about a top bloke. He looks amazing. <laughs> his music is incredible. You know, his life journey, his outlook on life. I, I love the. I love the man that he's become now. I think he's and, up to uh, in the up to something like thirty-five albums or something. You know, God forbid, God forbid, if something happens to him, we'll all be, you know, we'll be buying his back albums forever, won't they? Well, so, first, uh, uh, I think the third man in the history to have a number one album in five decades, five different decades in the UK. Yeah. That that's really amazing. Um, so, what was the point I, I wanted to make was just the music was incredible. My recollection is just that every night the music was amazing. You got to see the Star Council every night. You know, you got to see Billy every night. And Billy was so passionate. He's so brilliant live. The communards were so brilliant live. And then they play with each other. So you'd have different mix and match. And then you do like move on up and um, people get ready. You know, Paul was a big Curtis Mayfield fan. That's right. So, That's right. and you know, you had Johnny Marr up there on stage playing guitar. And 
I actually got pictures where you can see Tim Ross standing off in the shadows in the, uh, I think in Birmingham. Like, wait, is that, that's Tim, right? So he's like a little zealot, you know. Yeah. So, dark, what, took, so what, took, what took you away from this industry? Because, I mean, it sounds like you're having a, it sounds like a scream, but it doesn't sound like you're making a huge amount of money. What, 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 what made you put the camera away and do something else? I think, I'll get a bit philosophical. Um, I think I was a much better photographer than I thought I was at the time. Right. So looking back now, dispassionately, and I'm not saying this to be arrogant or anything, I look, I look back at my photos now, I think they're incredible. And I didn't think that at the time. I thought I was like, a, you know, I could do my job. I was a decent photographer. I always thought I wasn't very imaginative. And in fact, that was, it turns out that was a strength and not a weakness because the people who like my pictures feel like there's a lot of character, like they can really, they're really seeing the person and not me in the photos, if that makes sense. So I was never any good at, at, at self-promotion. So my career, I never re reached the heights of, I don't know, Anton Corbin or Penny Smith or um, Chalky Davis or, you know, a lot of the really kind of legendary photographers. So after I moved here in 92, my career just kind of, it was, it was no fun anymore. Like I said, you know, doing one number, I went down, also REM, I went to LA to do REM and they kept us hanging around for two days. And I was supposed to come back to San Francisco and, and I had to postpone stuff here because we didn't get the interview for two days. Um, so is that because the music industry had just got too corporate or? It got to where everyone was being an with you and you were just a photographer. And photographers had a bad reputation because of paparazzi. So you didn't get a lot of respect, um, even if you were, you know, a real, a real photographer. And then the, the, the web started happening, the World Wide Web, 1994. Yeah. I started doing web design and development as I was into the graphic design and computers and everything. So I just kind of drifted out of it. And then, you know, so my library was over here, um, over there while I was over here. And I just felt like that was a done and dusted old part of my life. But, you know, you didn't know that the 80s were going to turn out to be, yeah. you know, like the 70s for football, you know, just just the, this amazing generation of music. Um, I was kind of dismissive of 80s music for decades and then really until lockdown. And I, I thought, why, why do I get this impression that 80s music is all kind of synth, you know, Duran Duran stuff, no offense. But the 80s was also the Clash and the Jam and the, and, and the, and the Ramones, I love those bands. Yeah. So once I started listening to them again, I started connecting with all the audiences, all the fans. I didn't realize that they were so huge, that the damned was so, there's so many fans of the damned. Um, I, I, I put some pictures, I scanned some pictures of Discharge a couple of weeks ago. I had no idea, they're massive. Yeah. People love Discharge. I didn't realize they were like the first hardcore punk band. Yeah. And then, you know, members of the band, like one of the, the guy's uh, wife, Rainy, Rainy's wife got in touch with me, said, I love these pictures. And uh, Gary, the drummer in, in Coventry, He's got, he's had a store in Coventry for 30 years. Yeah. I said, we, turns out we went to the same gigs together. He saw school meals. He saw, you know, this, uh, early specials gigs. Gary, the drummer in Discharge, I had no idea. It's funny. So now can, I'm connecting with a lot of people from back then before you couldn't do it, right? Because, yeah. you know, I never had anyone's phone number and yeah. um, no one would ever have been home. We didn't have cell phones. So you couldn't text anyone. But now with Instagram, everyone's on Instagram and, and, um, and it turns out that even people in bands that I thought were kind of minor, and I'll be honest, I thought Talk Talk were kind of a minor band. Oh my God, people love Mark Hollis. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, I saw I saw your pictures of him the other day. I didn't love Talk Talk. I I, I love Paul Weller and the uh, Style Council. So, uh, but look, so so you've used that then. So so social media has been a, a great tool for you to what to to get the word out about your gallery, but also presumably you're running a successful online business now on the back of that, are you? Yeah, because the gallery hardly does any business really. It's mostly what I call a vanity project. But I have a printer there now, so I can do my own printing. Um, so I kind of treat it as my office and I do a lot of Instagram lives from the gallery because I'm there in the afternoons and I sell some pictures but we're still you know in the middle of COVID so uh, the tourism trade is really you know non-existent um, so I don't get many people coming in except the bitter weekends but everyone's been introspective and looking at their you know looking back over their lives and, and the things that meant a lot to them and live music not not being able to, to do it um so a lot of what I sell is live pictures and loads of the people that buy the pictures went to see those, like they were at the gig, they went to see those bands or they were even at the gig that I took pictures of. Um, and everyone's really connecting with uh, or reconnecting with their music from the past. So, you know, for all the tragedy of COVID, it, it, for me, it, it presented an opportunity as well. Absolutely. So I mean, I kind of to say that, but... I'm, I'm, I'm sensing we might have to have part two of this on the basis it's... it's Five past seven in the evening here, and uh, I haven't watched any of that football match. So next time we pick up, I want to hear about Bowie. I want to hear about Susie Sue. I want to hear about the Ramones. Um, just to answer this before you go, then Steve, who who lived up to that rock and roll reputation? Who were who were the real me, rock and rollers? Let me. <laughs> yeah, other than you. Let me kill Mister. Um, I'll tell you the Lemmy story next time. Then that, that's my favourite story. It's such a Lemmy story. Listen, thanks, thanks for your time, mate. I do appreciate it. I think you're doing a great job. So if people want to have a look at your prints, am I right? sr-photo.com is your website. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Instagram, Instagram is the best place to start, Steve. <clears throat> excuse me, at Steve Rapport Photography. Yeah, Steve Rapport Photography, folks, on Instagram. Uh, and you'll see the, the real deal that is Steve. Steve, thanks for your time. Good luck with the second half of the match. Yeah, I was going to say, next time, we're going, we're when we do part two, six, hopefully... Yeah, we're going to spend the next six weeks editing this uh, podcast. But uh, when, it, when it's <laughs> well, ready, I'll send you a copy. Next time we talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next time I'll time it when West Ham are not playing a football match. But, yeah. yeah. Okay, mate. Good talking to you. Thanks for your time, pal. All the best. Okay. Take care.